You're about to hear my conversation with our co-CIOs Leslie Marks and Steve Locke. We talk all about the Blue Book, which contains our one-year forward-expected guidance by asset class and the major macro events that we're keeping our eyes on. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Leslie Marks and Steve Locke, our co-CIOs. Leslie, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Great to be here with you, Matt. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the recently launched uh, Blue Book, which has our one-year forward-looking expectations. Uh, We're going to get into a long conversation about what investors can think about uh, for the following year. But I wanted to actually start off by reflecting on the year that was, uh, 2022. And maybe I'll start with you, Steve. Um, What did you expect out of the year? What surprised you? Uh, And and what are some of the main themes uh, over the past year? Well, I think there were a lot of surprises to be sure, Matt. And you know, if you take a look at market volatility, it really that's really speaks to it. We had an extremely volatile year, and uh, I would say for us, um, it wasn't a surprise coming into 2022 that we we're going to see some market volatility. But the magnitude and duration of that volatility, I think, was the surprise. Um, so we we did have a um, a view coming into 2022 that uh, with the inflection potentially underway for Fed policy. Uh, and given that markets had had an extremely strong performance coming out of the depths of the pandemic, right. uh, supported by a lot of stimulus, that, that was going to lead to that the change in volatility experienced in the market. Um, you know, the, the main driver really of that change was the inflation story and how it was changing at the end of, uh, of 2021. And ultimately then created that turn in the Fed policy. Uh, And the Fed policy, if you remember, at the end of 2021, in fact, it was just a little bit over a year ago uh, in sort of late November to early December that Chairman Powell of the Fed started to back away from the use of the word transitory when describing inflation. And inflation had already taken off. In fact, by mid-December, it was sitting at a level that was... um, uh, not dissimilar in some of the inflation measures as to where we are today. So there was a significant rise already underway at that point. So the the surprise, I think, was that uh, you know we saw um, inflation really become much stickier in 2022, and ultimately that meant the next surprise was that central bank policy had to move much more aggressively against that. So if you're looking back at the year that was. Um, a few things were happening that we expected to happen, higher volatility, uh, rising rates to combat some inflation, but the way that inflation took off and the ultimately the, the, the degree of that uh, uh, fight by the Fed and other central banks was uh, surprised as to how, how uh, intense that became. 
That's great context, Steve, to talk about uh, this year's Blue Book. Uh, some of those themes seem like they extend uh, through uh, through what you're expecting or what you'll be looking for next year. Um, and those uh, three themes that you've outlined in uh, this year's Blue Book are financial conditions, economic slowdowns, and geopolitical wildcards. Leslie, maybe you can uh, speak to uh, those three themes and how you decided that those were the most important uh, ones uh, to look forward to in 2023. Sure. Well, financial conditions really encompasses both the trajectory of inflation and the central banker's response, which we see as a really key theme this year, because when it comes to asset class performance, the market is really taking its cue from central bankers. And we're really not at the point where I would say we could expect a pivot yet in central bank response. I'd go with another P word, pause, but not uh, not pivot mm-hmm. yet. And um, although we would say that we're close to the end of the tightening cycle, the question now moves to how long will interest rates stay elevated? The fact that a 4% increase in interest rates over the last uh, nine months barely shook the economy tells you that probably interest rates will stay higher for longer than you think. So This obviously keeps financial conditions tight as well. And this is why we thought this was still a very important theme for this year. Right. The second important theme is sort of the outcome of the tighter financial conditions, which is the expectation for economic slowdown, potentially recession. Um, In 2023, uh, you know, we've sort of had the sense that throughout this past year, we've been living a bit on borrowed time with respect to earnings, um, the economic slowdown will translate into softer earnings. And every quarter we sort of say, is this the one, is this the time when we're going to hear about earnings uh, rolling over? Um, And we just haven't seen that in in a material way as, as of yet. So we think that the economic slowdown and in turn the impact on earnings will be a very important theme for 2023 especially uh, how that impacts uh, equity performance. And then thirdly, the geopolitical risks. When we entered 2022, we obviously did not anticipate the conflict in Ukraine uh, with Russia. And that has certainly gone a lot longer than any of us expected. And it's a good reminder that, um, you know, especially when asset classes are priced for perfection and not reflecting risk, that we have to always consider that geopolitical wildcards have a high potential risk. Um, But I think now more than ever, those geopolitical risks seem uh, fairly heightened. And I guess the other piece on the geopolitical side relates to China and the impact that although things seem to have uh, softened a little bit on the tensions between the United States and China, uh, which is a net positive, Uh, The bigger trend in the geopolitical side with respect to China will be about the softening of zero COVID policies and the impact that that could have on global economic growth. So it kind of ties back into the economic slowdown question. So those are really the three things that we felt would shape the outcome for asset classes to the greatest degree this year. 
That's a great context and great summary. Uh, I'd love to dive into each of those three things in a little bit more detail. Um, and maybe we'll start with you, Steve, uh, as the CIO of fixed income multi-asset. You have a uh, in-depth view on central banks and central bank actions. Uh, and right now, there seems like there's a bit of a disconnect, uh, particularly uh, after the last meeting with uh, with the Fed, um, between what the Federal Reserve is suggesting that they're going to do uh, based on the dot plot and where interest rate expectations are and what the market is pricing in. Um, ultimately, who do you think is going to be right, the market or, or what the Fed is uh, indicating that they're going to do? Yeah, I always like to think the market is going to get it right. But uh, if we look back at this year, as I talked about at the beginning with the, some of the surprises that were in play, um, the Fed really uh, was ahead of the market for, um, I think, much of the first quarter and into the second quarter, raising the expectations of policy rate movement ahead of the where the market was pricing it, which is why we right. got such a dramatic bear market for bonds as the year went on. Not just the magnitude of the change in the Fed, but the fact that the, the, the market was not used to this and not really believing the in fulsome way, the, the inflation story and, and the, the breakout and, and sustaining that high level of inflation, how ardent the Fed was going to fight that uh, during the, uh, the year. So when we look at it, for example, a year ago, um, Fed, uh, the, the dot plot released by the Fed in December uh, of uh, 2021 showed that in their estimation, that the, the median of the dots was saying that the Fed funds was going to end 2022 roughly in and around 90 basis points. Now, I mean, that that was, you know, that's obviously almost laughable in a way sure. con compared to where we are today um, with Fed funds being so demonstrably higher than that and the, the series of hikes being so aggressive. But, you know, Corresponding to that, the market a year ago was pricing in Fed funds being lower than 90 basis points. It was about 76 basis points for Fed funds rate at the end of 2022. So where are we today? Well, you know, this is that that outlook component and the, why financial conditions you think are we think are you know really um, going to be the essence of the, one of the big changes looking ahead. Uh, the market today is pricing for about a 4.3 percent Fed funds rate for the end of 2020. Three, and uh, the Fed just told us in their statement of economic projections that we just received that their median dot is at 5.1%. So the Fed is again estimating they, they're going to be uh, a little more hawkish than the market. Or another way to put it, the market is pricing in rate cuts that the Fed is basically trying to say they're not going to deliver if we right. believe that the dot plot is accurate. So it's hard to know who's going to be right in this situation. Uh, certainly, as we look ahead, what we do expect to see is that financial conditions are going to continue to tighten, first and foremost, based on the hiking by the Fed and other central banks that's already in queue. It's already been done. And of course, monetary po policy op operates, as we know, with a variable and lagged effect in the economy. So. Uh, that is going to pass through into the real economy, into lending um, in 2023. And the Fed, even at the latest meeting, uh, uh, Chairman Powell said that he's going to continue to hike because he thinks that financial conditions um, and monetary policies um, impressing on that are not quite at the point where they can really uh, say that we're, we're clear of the inflation risk. So right. they need to see inflation coming down and they need to see it coming down in certain ways. 
so that suggests that the Fed is serious about 5.1% as a peak rate and a sustained Fed funds rate through 2023. And the market is therefore underpricing that. I think that there's a lot of uh, potential for the Fed to hold that policy rate higher. And that's where what Leslie and I are suggesting, along with um, you know, the great folks who've contributed across our investment team to the Blue Book, is that there's going to be a, tight, a tighter policy ahead and it's gonna be maintained through the year. And ultimately we're seeing some effects of that already starting to creep in through financial tightening. Uh, you know, if, for example, if we look at some of the senior loan officer surveys that are out in the US, they are suggesting that tight financial conditions are already coming in and are likely to be delivered uh, more so into 2023. So, you know, I, th that's my lack of a prediction for you. But if I was to believe <laughs> the market or the Fed, I'm going to say sure. right now, I'm, I'm a little bit more believing that the Fed is serious about a 5.1% uh, terminal Fed funds rate. That's great, Stephen. Um in light of that, and, and it really doesn't matter if you if you choose the market or the the Fed at this point in time. You mentioned uh, markets were expecting expecting less than ninety basis points at the end of December uh, last year. Uh, clearly, uh, much much higher, uh, regardless of what uh, track you take. My question to you is: In the blue book, you do mention that you're not expecting a large wave of corporate defaults. Um, for years, I've been hearing about these zombie companies that are sprouting up everywhere that uh, exist on cheap money and, uh, and they, they have uh, weak business models. Um, and I would have expected that given the level of interest rates that we're talking about, that this would be really detrimental to those types of companies. Um, maybe you can take me through uh, what I'm missing uh, in that or, if, or uh, what is behind your prediction of low default rates next year. Yeah, so I guess you know there's there's definitely something to be concerned about there. When you're going into any kind of economic slowdown, you're going to see companies fail, and the ones who are over levered, the ones that have, you know, very pro cyclical businesses, um, the ones that are uh, uh, ultimately have less financing options in those moments are the ones that typically will will be the ones that fail. Um, when we look at the current picture for corporate credit. I mean, there's some good news actually in there. Uh, so first of all, of course, as we've known, uh, everyone knows, companies have earned a lot of money in the last couple of years. And there's, right. they've been generating a lot of cash flow. Um, many companies felt very much at risk around their financing just a couple of years ago when we were in the, the, the really initial phase of the pandemic and uh, all of the various lockdown and other measures that were having to be put in place uh, at that point in time, at least, to, to, in thinking about containing the global health problem, that led to you know, the pot great potential for business failures. So with that came the reset with much lower yields. And a lot of companies actually termed out their debt through when the markets reopened in 2020, pushing, to, pushing the maturity uh, curve out into future years. So the first thing that we look at today now as we look ahead to 2023 is to say there's actually, if we look at the high yield market, the high yield bond market is where most defaults will occur. It's the non-investment grade area of the market. Right. Um, that market uh, does not have a lot of debt maturing in it over the next couple of years. So the maturity wall that we normally talk about, which is, uh, if you can imagine, 
um, a wave of bond maturities uh, coming to that you're that you're moving toward over time. That maturity wall isn't out until about 2025. So that lack of refinancing risk on the calendar right in front of us means that uh, that'll automatically limit some of the damage in terms of an economic slowdown as it as it pertains to default risk. Um, other things that are you know uh, supportive again company profitability large uh, company cash flow being many times the amount of interest that's due on their fixed rate obligations that's a very healthy ratio today so even right. if we do see some slowdown in earnings as Leslie talked about if we do see that happening and that does impact cash flow there's a lot of cushioning still available there um, in the market now we're talking generally about the market here I want to be clear that you know there are some areas of the market that where there could be some issues of defaults rising. So we do expect defaults to rise a little bit next year. Uh, but um, you know, when we think about investment grade companies, when we look at the higher quality spaces within the high yield bond market, we expect to see that uh, those companies will be able to weather the, any, any kind of uh, economic downturn uh, relatively well in this scenario. So again, zombie companies aside, I think the broad picture looks like defaults aren't going to rise dramatically in 2023. That's great. And to sort of go along with that narrative, Steve, um, and maybe turning to you, Leslie, in the blue book, there is a suggestion that the recession, uh, if it does come, uh, more of a soft landing scenario as opposed to that that really deep, uh, hard recession. Um, you know, if I think about the last time that there was high inflation, uh, going into the late 70s or early 80s, that was followed by a fairly brutal recession uh, that's, uh, in order to get inflation under control. Why do you think it'll be different this time, Leslie? Well, it's true, uh, Matt, that history is not really on our side. <laughs> when you look at what we've seen from um, central bankers, the pace at which interest rates have risen, um, look at things like the leading economic indicator, which has dropped for eight consecutive months, um, the yield curve inversion. These are all signals that in the past have indicated 100% of the time that we would enter into a recession. Um, but we think that, you know, we're making a bold call to say that based on what we know today, we think we're going to land somewhere between a soft landing and a mild recession. Mm. And I hesitate to even say and utter the words, but it is a bit of a this time is different, but it, it really truly is because um, in this scenario, what we're faced with is the, um, if you if you will, the aftermath of a global pandemic. And the path that we see to a soft landing or mild recession is really, and I talked about this in, in the blue book, uh, a reduction of job openings, because right now there's still a high level, high number of job openings. Right. So under that scenario, um, you could see that that could help if we just saw a reduction in job openings, that would help um, ease the tightness that we're experiencing today in, in the job market. But yet the unemployment rate doesn't move too much. Um, so we think that that is the most likely scenario based on what we see today. And I want to just talk specifically about some of the things that are unique as a result of the pandemic that we have to acknowledge as part of our forecast for the uh, uh, soft landing or a mild recession. 
And when you think about it, if you reflect, a lot of our inflation problems were because of the pandemic. We started out with um, sure. strong supply side challenges, and that created shortages, which led to goods inflation. And you remember when the Fed or the Bank of Canada started raising rates, people said it's not going to work because um, that doesn't focus on the supply side. But right. eventually, the supply side uh, took care of itself. And now um, we're starting to see the impact on the demand side of the equation. And even if you look at the latest inflation data, the goods inflation was actually negative. It's the services side that's become the, the challenge. And that's mostly because of the tight labor market. So the labor market is, is key to, to, the, um, to the outcome here. And labor has been challenged um, in a couple of ways, but some are actually also pandemic related. Early retirements have caused a reduction in the workforce. Uh, long COVID has been an issue. COVID has also reduced an increase in labor supply from immigration. Um, so there's a few factors that have led to inflation that have really uh, made this a, a little bit of a different scenario than we've seen historically. I guess, I guess the other thing to acknowledge is this idea of revenge spending, that people, right. because they couldn't do things for so long, particularly in the services sector like travel and go to restaurants and have experiences, go to concerts, that there is this sense of, well, I better do it now and I'll pay sort of any price to do it. So it's things that would normally historically have been demand elastic have proved to be a little bit price inelastic. So um, at this point, uh, what we would say is that it is likely that things will be different this time. And I think everyone has been really surprised at how the economy has responded, um, despite the fact that we've had this extremely quick move higher in interest rates. It's been very resilient. That's that's true. And nowhere is that uh, more obvious than the labor market, um, where, uh, as you pointed out, uh, lots of jobs for, for people uh, who are looking for them. Um, one exception to that, or one thing that we're starting to see is uh, fairly large layoffs in certain aspects of, of the economy. I'm thinking of technology, I'm thinking of investment banking. Um, and it's it's a bit of unusual. Are we are we heading to sort of like a white collar recession? Because it seems like uh, some of the uh, more labor intensive service oriented jobs, there's there's plenty of them. Uh, but these segments of white collar work are, are really uh, starting to feel the recession. I think, I, I think there's something to that. If you reflect on the last few years, think about who benefited during the pandemic. Really, it was the white collar workers. And if you think of the two industries you mentioned, technology and financial services, those were two industries that performed very well over the last sure. two and a half, three years. So you can see how it would be reasonable to expect that excesses may have built up in those industries, particularly where we're seeing maybe a moderation in demand for some of the services from technology or financial services companies. There's another thing that, is, that creates a bit of an overhang on um, the white collar or professional worker, which is that um, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the professional occupations now make up 44% of total employment. And this is up from 34% in 2000. So over the last 20 uh -huh. years, um, professional occupations have really grown as a percentage of our, our labor force. So it's not surprising that there may be uh, some excess in white collar 
labor. And that's why we're seeing that come out first when we see layoffs. Um, in the technology industry, I've seen statistics that show that technology employment is up 10% versus pre-pandemic. Now, yeah. that industry has also grown uh, 10%. But, um, you know, technology jobs have sort of taken up the, the meme world these days with talking about all the perks and, and benefits of working in that industry and how, sure. um, you know, there's a lot of excess in, in the industry because they could afford to experience excess just thinking about Meta as, as one example, they announced they're laying off 11,000 workers and they still have 70% more workers than pre-pandemic. So I think that we're going to continue to see hotspots in, in the economy where we'll see a disproportionate amount of layoffs. Um, you know, the other thing I should mention is that right now, because there is a, a general shortage of labor um in, in the um, traditional sense of labor, that this group um, wields a lot of power right now. And this is the group that's actually achieving 5% plus wage growth. And right. so you see the strength in unions, for example, in the negotiations and the impact that that's having across um, industry. And so there is a bit of a dichotomy around the, the impact on the white collar workforce and the extent of layoffs versus, say, the more um, unionized labor pools, which are still experiencing tight conditions and uh, as a result, having success on the wage growth side as well. Interesting. Um, and certainly a, a unique dynamic, at least in my uh, in my mind. Um, staying with you, Leslie, you, you referenced uh, revenge spending uh, in some of your comments uh, in the demand that that uh, places on services. Um, China appears to be uh, rapidly relaxing their uh, zero COVID policy. Um, are we likely to see sort of revenge spending out of the Chinese economy? And will that potentially filter through to overall global inflation and have impact? impacts on hike, uh, rate hike cycles and, and the like? So we've acknowledged that as one of our geopolitical wildcards, the relaxation of zero COVID policies in China could really change the calculus of the outlook for the next 12 months. When you look at the consensus expectations for global economic growth for next year, they're just above 2%. They're kind of teetering on a global recession. China alone, if we experience in China what we experienced in the rest of the world from spending that came out of the ending of restrictions or lockdowns, um, could contribute another 0.5% of economic growth to the global mm -hmm. economy, which could be a game changer. That could make us go from um, an ec a global economic recession to moderate or slow, sluggish, whatever, use whatever adjective you want, economic growth for the global economy. And this could potentially um, fuel inflation. Uh, when, you know, you have all these central bankers working together to try and curb inflation and countries like China aren't experiencing the same inflationary um, backdrop that we see in in the rest of the developed world, if you, if you will. So this um, economy is actually running almost counter cyclical to the rest of the world. It also means that 
their um, policymakers can have loose and supportive fiscal policy, loose and supportive monetary policy. So on a relative economic growth basis, uh, China could do very well coming out of uh, the relaxation of the zero COVID policy. And um, I think you will see consumers really start to actively spend in response to that change in policy at the leadership level. That's great. And sticking with sort of geopolitical uh, uh, wild cards, uh, clearly the uh, zero COVID out of China uh, one, probably the headline one when we think about 2022 was the uh, invasion of Ukraine um, and the pressure that that had put on uh, the com commodity complex and, and Europe in general. Uh, Steve, um, Europe is clearly suffering uh, as a result of that uh, invasion. Is that fully priced in right now, or would you expect uh, uh, more downside to come? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think the, the idea of a recession in Europe is something that's been embraced within the markets um, this last few months. Um, and uh, clearly you've seen, you know, through the course of 2022, you saw the U.S. dollar, for example, outperforming the euro and, and other regional currencies. So it's, it's clearly uh, been understood that the Fed had an inflation fight and Europe had a growth problem. I think, if anything, things are shifting a little bit now where you have con certainly continuing concerns about European growth. We've talked a little bit about the global growth slowdown. Leslie mentioned uh, growth rates and in particular... We talked a little bit about financial tightening and how that's going to impact certain markets like the U.S. But Europe, on the other hand, uh, has an inflation problem continuing. And if we look at the recent actions by the ECB, um, you had Lagarde uh, hiking rates and sent with a much more hawkish outlook on monetary policy um, in order to combat inflation. So I think if we are to then take calculus of where, what's happening in Europe today, You'd have to say that there's distinct impacts that are coming in, not just from the economic slowdown that they've already experienced and the continuing energy supply story, which at least for this uh, recent season, or this, this season that we're in now, has been dealt with by way of large scale support. Uh, but there is still an outstanding question as to how that's going to um, be translated forward for these economies. Well, maybe I'll touch on that more in a minute. But the, the near term is now also being hit with the rising yield curves in Europe um, on the right. basis of that hawkish comments by the ECB. So fighting this inflation, which we see you know, in the UK over 10%, and you see in countries like Italy close to 12%, uh, you had peaks in like the Netherlands up around 14.5%. It's come back down to just under 10 but still extremely high. Uh, you look across the zone, the, Euro, the Eurozone has uh, inflation rates in the high single digits for many countries. Um, the ECB seems now to be taking a page out of the Fed's book and saying we're going to be more hawkish. And that ultimately, in co combination with these, the, the issues around energy supply uh, and uh, ultimately uh, just general uncertainty in the region about, about growth, uh, also now potentially impacting certain supply chains with with strike action, which is underway around uh, you know labor demands for cost of living adjustments. These things are right. going to distinctly have a growth uh, impact and be a growth headwind for for Europe. Um, I'll just you know I'll, I'll just uh, make you know quick mention of the energy story as we look ahead. 
and thinking about what Europe has had to do in 2022 with the, con the, the war in Ukraine being um, so distinctly impactful on energy and particularly natural gas storage in Europe. Um, Europe had to replenish its supply to get ready for winter, and it did uh, quite a bit of work during 2022 to accomplish that. Um, as they did that, they had to spend a lot of money to support households and businesses and to pay premium rates for shipping and for um, uh, other uh, costs, including just the cost of gas itself, to be imported to Europe. Um, the spend there is excessive. It's huge. It's something like $700 billion to a trillion dollars of spend across the zone to to deal with this uh, energy issue. Um, but it's not solved because, of course, as we go ahead, there's still, there's still uncertainty. There's still a security issue that has to be dealt with for Europeans as it comes to their sources of energy. Um, so looking ahead, and it could be years ahead, there's likely to be this overhang on growth and ultimately some policy reaction to have to uh, work uh, to, to achieve energy security and whatever that costs for the Eurozone. So I think as we look at that as a secular issue, we think back to the ECB, there's a couple of reasons to think here that you know, European growth isn't necessarily going to you know, kind of rebound quickly if we do see kind of inflation pressures coming down. I think right. like any econ uh, diverse economy, of course, there will be some positives. There'll be some uh, areas that need more support. But uh, in general, we could say um, you know, Europe seems to be having a, to fight the inflation fight going forward for a little bit longer. Something that we'll pay attention to uh, throughout uh, next year and, and very likely uh, beyond. Uh, maybe we can transition now to talk about specific asset classes. Uh, so we've sort of set the groundwork on uh, the uh, macroeconomic uh, underpinnings and key things that you're looking on. Uh, Leslie, what do you think about equity markets in general? How much uh, of, the, uh, of the reflection or your outlook is already priced in and what are your expectations for them uh, going into 2023? So I know this is going to be a bit disappointing, but <laughs> we our view on equities is a neutral view, which means that we don't look at equities and say, you know, this is a time uh, where we believe one should go underweight equities, which sort of speaks to your comment about what's priced in, or a time to be significantly overweight equities. And part of that is nuanced because of geographies, which I will get into. And part of that is related to timing. And we think that the front uh, half of the year could be challenging for equities in the context of the earnings story. And I, I joked about us, you know, we keep waiting for earnings to reflect uh, what we've seen on the central bank policy side. And yes, earnings have rolled over, but there's still an expectation that earnings for the S&P, for example, are going to grow by five or six percent next year. Uh, typically in a recession, you would see 20 to 25% downturn in, in earnings. So we're not certainly pricing in recessionary conditions by the consensus view for, for earnings. And, and I should say for a lot of our listeners for the S&P TSX, that number is about 2% growth next year, obviously paling in comparison to uh, the U.S. because of the energy piece, which really drove outsized earnings growth this year. And the expectation is that that won't be um, for 
that, that we won't have that same large contribution from a big uptick in energy prices uh, for, for next year. So you've got this headwind of earnings, but we've already experienced a pretty significant multiple contraction for um, stocks globally. And that was really related to the, the interest rate piece that, that we experienced throughout the year. So some of the negative outlook is priced in, but not all of it. And the story to be bullish on equities is really about looking through the valley to the other side of the slowdown or recession, whatever we actually ex experience. And I think at this point in time, it's premature for us to put a line in the sand and say, by the end of this year, um, equities will see through to the other side of that uh, economic downturn. We know it will happen eventually. But um, I think we will have more confidence in our views around the impact on the economic slowdown and that um, bringing yields down and, and bond prices up than we, than we do about equities uh, right now. So that's sort of the overarching view uh, towards equities. But I mentioned that you have to look at equities through a geographic lens. And I would say the area where we would be the most negative on our outlook for equities is U.S. equities. We continue to think that the technology or growth sectors will be a significant headwind for U.S. stocks. Um, we believe that what has worked over the last 10 years, which includes U.S. equities just in general, uh, will not be what works in this new regime. The conditions that set up that, that growth trade, that technology trade, uh, no longer exist, not to say that they don't come back in the future, but we certainly don't see them coming back in the next 12 months. And so for the next 12 months, we think that U.S. equities continue to underperform. And we think that there is going to be relative upside in almost every other uh, geographic area for, for equities. So starting with Canada, um, we think that uh, Canadian stocks will do better Um for one, because we expect the U.S. dollar to roll over. The U.S. dollar mm. has been sort of that flight to safety asset class this year. Um, it was extremely overbought, um, trading well beyond its fundamental value. Um, as the Federal Reserve becomes, you know, starts to move towards the pause or peak interest rates, we think that that um, will be uh, a headwind for the U.S. dollar. We think that as people start to feel um, more comfortable with where we are in the economy, that there won't be such a focus on risk off related to the dollar, that if people are concerned about risk, they'll start to buy bonds again, which which they haven't right. been doing so much this year. So the, the, the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar rolling over, we think will help. Um, we think that resource prices in general, although um, have come off of their highs from March of this year, will have a bid under them because of the underinvestment in resources. We also think the China story plays into resources. Um, mm. So Canada, uh, and, and, and also there's the valuation piece, Canadian stocks trading at less than 12 times earnings. So I think Canada is relatively attractive. And then some of those factors also play into international and Asian equity, or sorry, uh, European and Asian equities, both um, undervalued on historical basis when you compare current valuations versus history. Now, that's not a reason to buy asset classes, but at least it gives you comfort and, and in the sense of a greater margin of safety. Sure. Europe is further down the path on this uh, economic slowdown slash recession. Steve talked about that. So they're likely to be closer to coming out of um, the, the recession. 
Um, and, and this year has been extraordinary from a food and fuel inflation uh, lens for that region. And remember, when we look at inflation, it's always year over year. So it, it's right. a very high bar for us to experience that kind of 10 to 15% inflation level uh, for next year. So that may open the door. I, I know that um, Steve referenced the ECB and Christine Lagarde did say last week specifically, anyone who thinks that this is a pivot for the ECB is wrong. But I do think if inflation starts to come down in a material way, it does open the door. I just think all central bankers are almost getting like their passport stamped now for being hawkish. They're all sort of competing right. with who can be the most hawkish to try and temper expectations. And because they don't want people to feel optimistic about the future, because that will contribute to the inflation uh, problem. So I think Europe represents an opportunity. And then um, Asia as, as well will benefit from the opening of uh, China. Um, also benefits from a weaker U.S. dollar because they tend to be commodity importers and a strong U.S. dollar makes commodities uh, more expensive. And the Asian economies are also less uh, susceptible to the inflation trends because their labor markets are not as tight as we experience here in North America or in Europe. So it allows their central bankers to have a little bit more flexibility. And then lastly, emerging markets also benefit from a weaker U.S. dollar, low valuation, um, also the China reopening. So all of those things all together are all really positive for most markets um, other than the U.S. So we kind of have positives from other markets, negatives. The U.S. overall gives us that neutral view towards equities overall. Very well explained. Um, Steve, maybe I'll, I'll turn to you next. Uh, your colleague and co-team lead of the fixed income team, Constantine Bomer, has been uh, with a chart this year that shows that, at least until the date that he was uh, he was using the, the data, that uh, it was the worst year for the 10-year U.S. Uh, um uh, government bond since the 1870s or something along those lines. Uh, what's your view on uh, fixed income for next year? Uh, and uh, and give us some hopes for optimism. Hopefully it won't be uh, as bad as we've suffered this year. Well, I, I think there is good news here. Um, and that uh, bond investors, of course, got so hammered uh, by the Fed rate hikes and the yield curve movement through 2022 that that uh, you know, we we can safely assume that 2023 is going to be a much better year for bond investors. Now, you know that's irrespective of, in some ways, the trajectory for the economy, um, right. because uh, as we've talked about, central banks have put a lot of tightening already on the board, and yield curves resetting to the where they have, and this is some of the best yields investors have had to work with in investment grade markets at any point in the last uh, uh, 13 to 15 years. So uh, all in, that makes the, the, the bond uh, environment a much more enticing place to, to put capital. And if those inflation rates are coming down, and, and as Leslie mentioned, you know, the year-over-year the -year rates, uh, are we think, are likely to come down because of the high bar, as she put it. Um, there's also the, the, the fact that over the last few months, if we look at the U.S. market, um, the monthly prints of inflation have actually been more or less coming in and around in line with like a two to two and a half percent annual rate. So there seems to be something turning in the inflation story, which makes real yields start to look potentially attractive here. So that uh, that story means when you put it together, um, if the Fed is hiking from here a few more times and bringing us a Fed funds rate a little over 5% and staying there, we could have a nice uh, mid 
single-digit total return appearing for investment-grade bonds uh, in in 2023, um, and that's without uh, you know the market's expectation of of uh, Fed cutting rates, which would of course enhance the the return for fixed income, and that would likely be of course more or less accompanying a a more dramatic slowdown in our opinion. So. Uh, the good news for bond investors on that front then is that, you know, this is a good place, a good time to start thinking about um, re-imaging your portfolio toward holding duration, holding invest, investment grade bonds. And particularly, we do like investment grade corporate bonds at the front end of the curve. Spreads have widened there, so you're getting nice yield premiums uh, there. Uh, you, can, you can achieve yields that are uh, above 6% quite easily in this, in this market. So we have a few areas that we like. Lastly, I'll say we talked a little bit about high yield earlier, Matt. Uh, we're we're yeah. roughly neutral on that area of the market right now, um, but w- we have to look underneath the, the hood there a little bit and for the nuances. We think that the higher quality zone within high yield, so the double B rated area of the market, is actually offering some attractive yield today. And those are very those are companies that generally don't default very often. Um, and right. the quality of the high yield market because of that double B sector has actually improved if we look cycle over cycle. So this cycle, we've seen a quality improvement there. Um, so we like you know that sort of segment of the high yield bond market a little bit as well right now. Um, we would be continuing to fade the triple C or single B minus highly speculative zones within uh, high yield bonds because we think we will see some of those defaults as the economy slows. Uh, these are companies that are generally over levered and that's where you're usually going to find some trouble. Um, lastly, um, you know, we think about the loan market where you have variable rate coupons. Uh, and again, this is a generally non-investment grade area of the market. We're cautious in that area of the market right now because you are seeing those coupons reset. You've got a number of over levered businesses in, the, in those spaces um, uh, in, in context of some of the, the LBOs that have been done in the past few years. And as those coupons are resetting higher, there's going to be pressure on some of those businesses. Um, uh, they're going to feel the, the impact of the Fed's financial tightening much more right. acutely in the year ahead. Uh, so we're cautious on that area of the market right now, particularly for loan-only capital structures where there's, there's no other debt in the capital structure other than the loan and uh, perhaps um, some private equity behind it. Um, last point I'll make on the, for multi-asset investors. Again, I think there's some good news here. I mean, you referenced Matt uh, the 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 context of 150 years of history and, and the worst 10-year U.S. Treasury return over that period of time in 2022. That's what we experienced. Um, one other one other way to look at this, in about the last 95 years or so, uh, the 60/40 portfolio has rarely had a year as, as bad as this. There's only right. maybe been a handful of times where you've had bonds and equities down in any meaningful way uh, during that uh, stretch. And we're you know, using U.S. data again here for this example. But when we go ahead and we, uh, we, we think about the forward view, then I think this, you know, the 60-40 investor is going to feel again that balancing effect between bonds and equities that they would expect to feel in uh, in different types of uh, economic environments. So the experience of 2022 with both markets being down is very unlikely to be repeated in uh, in 2023. So again, some some hopefully some nice tailwinds there for those people who are looking to do balanced investing. 
I think that uh, the death of the 6040 might have been the, the story of 2022 and the revival of it maybe uh, heading into next year. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking, well of, uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, revival and predictions in general, uh, my one of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra, at least it's attributed to him, who knows who actually said it is, um, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Uh, and uh, I know that... Uh, uh, this time of year, we're going to get a lot of predictions uh, about the year uh, coming. Um, and there's a uh, cottage industry, uh, really, that's uh, about how bad these predictions can be at times. Uh, and I'm curious, from both of your uh, perspective, how confident are you in, in the uh, narrative that you've laid out? Um, and uh, and what, are you, where, what would you be more confident or less confident in? Maybe I'll start with you, Leslie. Sure. Um, well, maybe I'll start with the things I am confident in and then the things that I'm not, I'm less confident. And so, you know, uh, Jerome Powell always sort of coins his comments around three questions, how high, how long, and and how fast. And I think we have good confidence now that we have a pretty good sense of how high rates are going to go and and the pace of rate increases because we're getting close to the end of the um, hiking cycle. But I think the one area that we have a lot of uncertainty around is how long are we going to stay at, at these levels? So I think, um, that's one area that I have less confidence here. Um, we just really don't know. We, ha- we haven't really seen any material impact on the economy yet of high interest rates. And so um, that sort of remains to be seen for 2023. I guess the other thing that gives me a little bit of concern too, that I think has um, a lack of pre- predictability is based on everything we see today uh, and the response from the labor market, which hasn't been you know, certainly that negative, um, with higher interest rates, we have this view that they, we could sustain um, an, a, a soft landing or um, a mild recession. But um, there is one sort of caveat to, to all of that, which is that the consumer has really been the one that has been holding the economy because the consumer continues to be working. The consumer had a strong balance sheet that was built up through the pandemic. Well, every month um, that balance sheet gets drawn down by by a little bit, and I've seen numbers in in sort of estimates of currently we're at about two trillion dollars of excess, and about two hundred billion gets drawn down every month. So if you use those simple numbers, about ten months from now we could see um, a pretty heavy shoe drop on on the economy if the consumer can no longer continue to support this economy. So I think that's the, the one area that we we could be wrong on in our expectations for this economic outlook if that um, does play out and um, the consumer is that major part of, you know, that leg of the stool for the economy and that leg gets sort of pulled out from from under us. Steve, what about you? Well, I'm uh, I'm pretty confident that the you know the front end of the investment grade market is going to perform well for investors in 2023, mm-hmm. and you know it, it's simple. Really, the mathematics kind of support that. Um, um, part of the rationale for that support is that what we've already baked in in terms of rate hikes and expectations, and uh, we're resting on the assumption there that the economy is going to slow down some more from those rate hikes. In other words, we have a yield sensitive economy. That um, and Leslie just referred to some of those effects. I think that uh, that's already starting to to happen. Um, that 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 ultimately means the Fed will be done with rate hikes. So right. I think even if they even if they're not, and we know there's probably a, a couple more coming from Powell. He's he's basically uh, tipped his hand there. 
I think that uh, when you look at the bond math, um, there's some there's some nice returns for bond investors at the front end of the yield curve, investment grade corporate. So I'm pretty confident about that. Um, you know, the rest of the yield curve is there's been a lot of gyration, even in Q4 of 2022 here around the slope of the curve. The slope is quite inverted. Um, we think that it's going to be largely inverted through the year or through the first part of the year as the Fed hits that peak policy rate. But I'm, I'm less confident uh, on this view because if we don't get uh, a, some kind of slowdown in the economy and some of the pressure on inflation doesn't abate via uh, a softening in the labor market, then you could see if there's a resumption of sort of a stronger than expected economic growth profile, that the curve is going to re-steepen. And uh, you're going to have long yields selling, uh, uh, moving higher, uh, so the bond market's selling off, which ultimately, to me, would uh, just be a, a, a very tough environment, not for, just for bond investors, but ultimately play, ba- play that back into things like the mortgage market in the U.S. Right. And, uh, and generally sets us up quite poorly for that refinancing calendar down the road. So. You know, that, that to me, you know, is, is one of the uncertainties here is if we don't see the financial tightening really playing out as quickly as the Fed would like it to. And to be clear, it hasn't played out as quickly as we all thought in 2022. Um, if we don't see it playing out through the first half of the year, then then you might you might have a little bit uh, of, of extra pressure applied by central bankers. Again, they're not going to really upset anything at the front end of the curve. It's more the long end of the curve where I, I'd expect that to happen. So, um, you know, all in all, Matt, I, I think that, you know, we, we like this time of year to try to make these predictions. And um, ultimately, uh, you know, we know some of them will be wrong, of course. But uh, uh, I think in general around our view, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this in the last quarter, last couple of quarters. And uh, I feel like we have... Um, uh, you know, a pretty a pretty sensible set of predictions that we're putting out here to guide investors um, on, a, on a good path here in the first part of 2023. Well said, Stephen. And uh, just to maybe conclude, I mean, I often think of the teams that both of uh, you lead, the boutiques that uh, do the active management day in and day out. They're paid to change their mind and respond to conditions as they unfold. Uh, so it's not as though they're set and forgot uh, at this point in time. So, Steve, Leslie, thank you so much for spending uh, the better part of an hour with me walking through the Blue Book. Uh, I really appreciate your insights. It was a, a action-packed episode. So thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for having us, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. 
The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.